What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your Nuclear Barbarian, and it is now time for the beginning of a new series that we'll be running with my homie, Andrew Plimpton, who is a writer and film critic that is here to talk to me today. It is called Energy Cinema, and our inaugural episode is going to be on the new Oppenheimer movie. What is up, Andrew? How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Emmett? Um, I'm excited to uh talk about this with you um because i had some thoughts about what i think this movie sub rosa was going to be about uh, uh -huh. before i ever saw it and i ended up being completely right uh so it's nice when that happens <laughs> and i'm stoked to get into that uh later but also i just want to say that like um i was actually heartened by the explosion of um moviegoers to see Oppenheimer and Barbie, which were directed by like auteurs, even if like Barbie is legacy IP, because it like, it's, you know, to me, I was like, we're back to seeing movies again, uh -huh. right? Like we're not doing the extended universe necessarily anymore. <laughs> like, you know, at least this is going on. I mean, who knows what's going to happen when we shake out, uh, you know, uh, the writer's strike and stuff like that. But to, to me, it was, it was, it was very heartening to see that. And I was kind of glad that I got to show up at the theater to a packed theater uh -huh. to see a one-off historical movie. Yeah. Uh, while a bunch of people dressed in pink were walking down the hall for me to go see Barbie with their families. I was like, I feel like I'm participating in the overculture again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, yeah, a lot of people are saying that I, I have a slightly skewed perspective about that because I work at an independent movie theater and oh, we're yes. not Bar Barbie or Oppenheimer. So as soon as those two movies opened, we had like no business. <laughs> well, dude, that's how you know that the overculture's back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but it it is striking that um, I I think this is maybe the most I have heard people and, you know, not just heard in person, but, you know, internet, all of it, you know, heard people talking about two movies in a while. Um, I guess everything everywhere all at once maybe had something close to that level of buzz. It, um, mm -hmm. yeah, or at least did, you know, uh, well, I actually, I don't have the figures at my disposal. I'm comparable, um, business, it just, but it was quite popular. You know, yeah, like it was, it was very, it was very popular. But yeah, it's interesting, you know, that um I mean they're two I'd I'm probably gonna see Barbie this week so I can finally, you know, see see what, what's going on. But yeah, it, it's mm -hmm. striking that one of them is well, one that it came out in the summer, but that it's a very dense historical movie. You know, regardless yeah. of what where you fall on it, it's three hours, it's extremely dense, it's um mostly intrigue is that, is that a fair thing to say yeah it's mostly um, intrigue i mean it's sort of like the first two acts because the acts are basically split into hours yeah right so the first two acts are basically like um sort of a typical historical science movie mm -hmm. where it's about the sort of intrigue and excitement around creating the thing uh, -huh. uh and then in the final act it's sort of like the backdrop of intrigue overtakes the plot and it becomes about something yeah. else yeah and we should 
just for clarity's sake, that this movie is framed by a famous historical trial, which involves um, Oppenheimer. Um, what is what he's being questioned about is whether or not he was a faithful American citizen, because um, nuclear secrets it is you know proven were leaked to the Russians, and you know this mm -hmm. is you know prime, you know. Not, actually, what what year do you, do you remember? What year? This trial is taking place. Uh, it takes place during the McCarthy era. Yeah, so like That's prime the, McCarthy era. Yeah, prime uh, McCarthy era. Yeah. Prime so Red Scare. By the way, if, if you haven't seen this, I don't know how you'd be a listener to the Nuclear Barbarians podcast and have not seen it unless it's not screening <laughs> in your country. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's um, there are going to be a lot of spoilers. So just uh, yeah. the main one being that we dropped the bomb twice. Um, and <laughs> uh, if you didn't know, now you know. Yeah. Uh, but. Uh, Okay, so I have like tons to say about this movie. It's almost like it and also it's really long and because of what it's about, there's like a lot to get through. So let me just ask you this, Andrew. Let me ask you about Nolan in general. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I think he's obviously a wildly popular director. Right now, he's sort of taken the mantle as the most productive of the auteurs that we sort of have in the Anglosphere right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we're not seeing a lot of David Fincher releases right now. T. Anderson's been pretty quiet um, comparatively. And Nolan has been uh, sort of like in the way that Tim Burton was, uh, willing to take on legacy IP and stuff like that and to have a more mainstream impact in addition to his his sort of like, uh, I would say harder movies, I guess, uh, that are more his own vision. What do you, what's your stance on Nolan? Nolan? Um, I, so I don't think Nolan is ultimately one of the greats, or at least that's mm -hmm. where I stand on, uh, stand on him right now. Um, that being said, I think, especially in the first half of his career, he does have a num number of, um, very strong, you know, even excellent movies. Um, an obvious candidate for that is Memento. Yes. Um, yeah. And before that, actually, his first um, his first film, which is just 70 minutes long following, is you you could argue that it's it's his most interesting. It's, you know, very extremely sort of like um, it plays sort of a lot of the games with time that he likes to. And it's so condensed and sort of and um very much about our darker impulses and all of that. Mm -hmm. And it's a uh, fun fact. My mom's boyfriend before my dad was instrumental in the producing of it. Well, um, no way. <laughs> yeah. But Memento, um, you know, I think is very, is just like, it's his strongest. Yeah, it's very strong. And interestingly, I, I found out recently that it's sort of by the next generation of, um, you know, Gen Z, they are not so much talking about Memento as Interstellar, which, you know, makes sense because it came out when they were in high school. Um, but, which is um, interesting because I think Interstellar um, could have been a fantastic movie. Yeah. If uh, Nolan doesn't do one thing that he yeah. is very prone to do, and that thing is to say, I'm just doing scientific rationality. And then uh -huh. when he runs out of ideas, it turns that into sentimentality. Yeah. And so if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Yeah, so it's a, Interstellar, I actually sort of stopped following him consistently the past mm-hmm. decade. And Interstellar is one that I still haven't seen, but I I believe you. And um, so I think, you know, Memento, I think, is very strong. I think the prestige is very strong. Yeah. It's unsung been, in comparison. Yeah, to in some ways movies. unsung. I still haven't seen Insomnia. I know some people... It, it tends to be kind of polarizing. Is that the one um, that Pacino? Isn't he in that? You know, Is Robin Williams is a villain in it. That's right. Yeah, I still haven't seen that either, um, but I kind of want to see it just to see Robin Williams be a villain. Yeah. Because he's only done it a couple of times. It's that and 24-hour photo. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and I think, um, you know, the Batman movies are... Um, it's... Or, you know, it's... They came out when I was a teenager. You know, there will always be a part of me that loves them. Mm-hmm. It's hard, you know, to look at those movies and at the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies without some incredibly mixed emotions at this point, because like we really like we have them to thank for kind of the intense, Long you know, abundance. Yeah, there is a part of me that is and this is, you know, possibly a place where all of my you know credibility abruptly goes out the window um a part of me is inclined to say that batman begins this is best movie i only fascinating i only half mean that um but in the sense that um you know um i won't say that necessarily the performances of it are you know i mean like heath ledger and say what you will about the dark knight you know Heath. Heath Ledger is incredible. Yeah, that's it. You can't. It's um, an it's an amazing performance. Like you can't. It's an the rest of the movie could be shit, and that performance. Yeah, is the, like, the performance is excellent. Amazing. Yeah, but you know, I mean, Batman Begins is one of these movies where the target audience. You know, when you think about it, it really is kids. Like it's one of these, and you know, as is the case with like you know most superhero movies, but with in that framework kind of um you know this um you know coming of age hero learns to you know master his fears i think he actually if not like emotional depth he manages at least to um give it some like emotional resonance you know that's proper to the kind of movie that he's trying to do and weirdly even though you know, um, well, actually, even though I don't know, even though what a lot of his films, in spite of, you know, having strong actors, sometimes in- interesting ideas, um, incredible production value, they can feel kind of cold and mechanical, which um, is and I would say kind of like a an over seriousness of tone um, is one of his greatest weaknesses which has come a lot uh, come up a lot in his movies of the past um i'd say that's me so and so when he goes into sentimentality it it does it it it, you know a lot of people can't pull sentimentality off but you know him especially because you know there there are other things that aren't working there so much so he he doesn't earn it right he doesn't you know yeah the director who did um uh, the Dead Poet Society. Um, Peter Ware. Peter Ware, yeah. So he, you know, the way he cast 
uh, Ethan Hawke and then the guy who plays like the sort of lead kid who uh, uh, kills himself is he cast okay. them in the opposition of their natural personalities. Mm -hmm. And he said mm -hmm. that's because you need to cast for the final color. Uh-huh. Because Ethan Hawke has to have the, I come out of my shell. You, you have to really sell that yeah. for it to be the climax. And I don't think that uh, Nolan has ever been good at considering what the finer color ought to be. And that's part of the problem. Yeah. And the other thing is, is like, because of his interests, right? So he has Tenet, he has all, all these other sort of movies that have these almost like internationalist espionage elements uh -huh. to them as well. That's something that he's very interested in. The whole Raza Ghoul elements of the Batman series sort of play into this as well. You know, these conspiratorial elements. Um, and the director, I, I think I always juxtapose that with this might be surprising to say. Um, I'll just say this and then we'll move on to the actual movie we're going to talk about <laughs> is uh, Michael Mann. Um, oh, huh. Because Michael Mann, in the latter part of his career, once he takes up digital mm -hmm. uh, shooting, so I'm thinking of Collateral, I'm thinking of Miami Vice, you know, he is, and I guess this is even true of, in a way of heat, even though that's um, shot uh, analog, is uh -huh. that it's a cold that leaves you cold. Yeah. Whereas um, Nolan is a cold that leaves you distant. And uh -huh. that means that it hasn't gotten under your skin in the way that I yeah. think film is supposed to, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, I think- I would say Inception is one that I like yeah, I, I would like to rewatch it and see how I feel about it now. But I, I would say it's, you know, you know, it's engaging. But like, did it get under my skin? No, no, no um, not at all. Whereas yeah. I still think about certain shots in Miami Vice and in Collateral. Like I think of the driving scenes in some of those movies because they yeah. so perfectly captured something about being American and about being in Los Angeles um, or in Miami. Uh, so. Okay, let's talk about Oppenheimer. Um, here's my first overall impression of this movie. Uh, mixed bag. Um, I was telling you before we started recording this that I think this is a movie that survives mostly because of uh, its actors mm -hmm. and because the casting is so good and because some of the cameos are frankly so good. I think mm -hmm. what, obviously Killian Murphy to me is... Uh, his performance is exceptional, I think, as Oppenheimer. I think he really embodies a historical figure, which is very, very hard to do. Um, you know, I, at no point do I feel that the historical figure of Oppenheimer is beyond Killian Murphy's control. Huh. Okay. Which is, I think, a really important... When you're looking at a historical film, that is the tension to resolve with the lead actor. Uh-huh. Is the weight of history too much for their shoulders to bear and that mm -hmm. is not the impression i got uh with that the other and the other reason it succeeds isn't just the greatness of the leads but also the bit parts mm -hmm. um and, and the smaller roles casting josh hartnett as ernest lawrence was genius hmm. you look at his face especially the way he's aged and you're like that's the all-american pragmatist guy uh-huh and that is exactly the role he plays in the film, right? Like, yeah. it, you, and you just have to look at his face, you know? He he sells that, the haircut, everything gets that done for you. Yeah. Um, and Groves, Matt Damon is Groves. Uh-huh. Was great. And I'd say that um, uh, RDJ as Strauss. Uh-huh. 
was fantastic because he's playing the inversion of Tony Stark. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. So like a lot of it, I mean, you're, you're coming to this, like knowing all of these people, like if not inside and out, like, you know, mm -hmm. well, so sure. um, yeah, I am. So I will say I, um, I think that sort of one thing that hampers this movie pretty significantly and I think in some ways gets in the way of a lot of the performances. Um, and I would say, I, I would say I agree about, about Killian Murphy, though. I think it's something that hampers him as well is kind of like, um, one thing is the tone. So kind of mm. over seriousness that is maybe kind of a lazy way to describe it what i'm talking about but um you know there are you know there are so many close-ups on his face there is so <laughs> much you know, like a certain kind of music playing trying to frame him as like and this is a significant figure and this is a person who makes history and you know one-liners that it's very much like can you tell i am a person who made history yes absolutely. i am and i i think you know there are times that you know, Killian Murphy comes out in one piece of that. And there are times that I don't think he totally does, though I wouldn't, um, though I wouldn't necessarily hold it against him. Because um, the writing's bad. That's yeah, the, the writing's bad. That's, that's the <laughs> that's thing. It's the, the writing's bad. And it's, you know, there are a lot of, you know, preposterously overwrought, um, you know, one-liners little yeah. like devices like where you you know you hallucinate that he's having sex with his mistress in the ruet you know like an incredible yeah like i i didn't need this movie to like demonstrate to me that florence pew is a dime like i knew yeah, that no, already. Like, you know, like you just gotta look at her <laughs> yeah. and be like oh she's gorgeous um yeah. and this this movie really like wants uh wants that to be completely yeah. clear that uh oppenheimer was attracted to bpd baddies um yeah and, also not to mention the part where um she makes him translate sanskrit in the middle oh dude just so preposterous is like um, and he says the thing like as he orgasms which is what he's on record as saying after after the trinity explosion it's just like dude come on um and yeah and uh especially because it doesn't serve the plot like it doesn't no there's no like it's because the gene tatlock thing that's florence pugh's character ends up being a skeleton in his closet. And so it's unclear how saying that actually like relates to, I guess you could say the atomic bomb becomes a skeleton in the closet, but that's like not yeah. even a way to say that because yeah. everybody knows about it. It's like, also, it's you know, not a that, secret. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, the, um, you know, the Emily Blunt character, at least, you know, I mean, Emily Blunt has a bizarre way of often being in movies where the writing isn't good and somehow managing to save her dignity as an actor. She's like I Sean think. Bean in that way. Yeah, she's like, she's like, like Sean Bean, exactly. Sean Bean and Troy as Odysseus <laughs> is phenomenal. And yeah. the writing in that movie is like <laughs> chat GPT version two. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Um, but Flora, the um, the Gene Tatlock character is um, especially given the amount of space that it is given to um, other things in the movie is, um, you know, she, we sort of jump to them like getting with each other and then it is very underexplored why she is, you know, refusing his flight. Like it just feels why she's refusing flowers from him. Um, well, you know, no it, one doesn't understand women like that's the one of the yeah, major flaws in his movie like they're yeah. not really people to him like yeah you know i don't even think that's like a woke point that's just like a structural yeah, artistic no, like, point about what shows up over and over again in his films yeah and no, that, they need foul. to die that is the service yeah. that they provide for the male protagonist is that they don't have their own psychology they have a fertilizing influence on the psychology of the male characters like right. and that is what tatlock does here that's why so much time is spent on it Usually when I see stuff like that, I say, gee, if it ain't one thing, it's your mother, Chris. Um, <laughs> you know, like you know, yeah. when you see that enough. And I would also say that, like, the way in which he meets the Tatlock character is another piece of very kludgy writing. I, yeah. This is just a nice little piece of Marxology. So, they, you know, he yeah. meets him at this, like, alleged, like, socialist gathering. <laughs> and he's peacocking about how he's read Marx in the original German because she corrects him when he says ownership is theft. And she says, property is theft. And then he says, oh, sorry, I've read it in the original German. But Marx never said that. In fact, the French socialist Proudhon said that. And Marx and Engels hated Proudhon. Proudhon's major work is called The Philosophy of Poverty, to which Engels and Marx wrote a book-length response called The Poverty of Philosophy. Wow. Okay. So yes. there's like... And you could say no, that that's just like a way for Oppenheimer to look like yet another guy who's pretending it doesn't really fit in. But that's a level of psychological sophistication that Nolan is not willing to do with any character and especially right. not something like communicating how historically important this is to the audience. So really, that's that's like one of the huge misuses of like the zeitgeist he's portraying. Yeah. Um, that if you know a little bit about it, sours it. And it's sort of like unintentionally taking advantage of the ignorance of the audience, you know? Yeah. And then I would say that there are moments where that does actually succeed. So there are moments where you see Oppenheimer as a young man in Europe, right? This is where he has like right. a big sort of like mystical experience. That's what gets him to reading Sanskrit. Like yeah. it's sort of, he's he says in the movie <clears throat> that he starts to become afraid of a world beneath the world that we're living in, right? Uh, and what the movie actually does really correctly, I was actually kind of shocked. Like, I think it was uh, like unintentionally really well done. It's not like the stupid CGI shots of like, what might Adam look like? Worrying for stuff <laughs> like that all looked like garbage, right? Like that's just like a, that's like a, a 4K screensaver. Um, but what does work is that it cuts to him looking at, cubist art in an art gallery and to uh -huh. him reading t.s Eliot, and to uh -huh. him basically imbibing a lot of what's happening in modernism in general on the continent reading freud which is all about the suspicion that there is a capital r real beneath the presentation of right. the world and so i thought that did in perhaps unintentionally great job of situating the, yeah, a scientific realization in a cultural context 
Because usually we treat those things as disaggregated yeah. and science is the more like almost transhistorical. But right. I don't think you really get one without the other. The uh, philosopher Rick Roderick describes like Marx and Nietzsche and Freud as the masters of suspicion. And uh-huh. uh, the French philosopher uh, um, Alain Badiou describes the 20th century as the century of the passion for the real, capital R. Uh-huh. And so we yeah. can see these things as attempts to touch the real. That's true of yeah. fascism. That's true of communism. And that is also true of uh, what's happening in the realm of science. Yeah. So it's maybe, you know, um, a well-placed, well-placed contextually. Those, though those individual scenes are handled in like a very Hollywoodized way, yeah. of course. But I would, so I, this, I'll tell you the parts of it that I thought were good. And I think they may in some ways contrast um, what you're saying, uh, what you were saying um, about the performances, but but may lead us into the heart of the matter. Mm. Um, so there were two, one, I thought just sort of broadly speaking, the first half, even, you know, if it was not necessarily handled in like very original terms, I'm talking, you know, aesthetically, not so mm-hmm. much, um, right? you know, is that broadly speaking, they did manage to convey this incredible excitement of discover- making new discoveries in science for their own sake. Mm-hmm. And that that whole period, you know, I don't know, you know, what exactly... And I'm interested to hear, you know, what exactly your thoughts on, you know, how um, Oppenheimer encountering Niels Bohr, you know, like how that, you know, was handled by Nolan. But I thought mm-hmm. sort of in the character and the tone and um, the feeling of it was was done well. Then skip way ahead in the movie. And this is the part that I when I'm being less generous, I say is the one good scene. Um, the scene with Truman and where, um, he's talking to Truman after the atom bomb has dropped. And there are a few, there are some reasons for it. There's, um, one sort of how it's shot. It's shot in this way that makes kind of like the this room in the lighthouse, excuse me, this isn't Virginia Woolf, um, in the white house feel like it has the Oval Office. Yeah. Yeah. The Oval Office have just like. A little, yeah, that's right. It's the Oval Office lull. Um, have just a little too much light. You can see like the sweat on Truman's head. There is a lot of dead space in the conversation that they're having, which is it the um the meat of it is, you know, Oppenheimer saying, you know, in so many words, I don't know if I can live with this weight on my shoulders and Truman saying, um, you know, they care about the person, person who put, dropped the bomb, not the person who, um, invented it. And you, what you get for, so a lot of this movie is rife for like a walk hard style parody mm-hmm. of, there's a lot of, you know, sort of like this man needs to think about his entire life before he goes on stage, you know, mm-hmm. in, in this movie and what, this scene accomplishes is that um you get this sense that you know the people inventing bombs making discoveries you know 
pressing the button, you know, the hand that signed the paper in so many words, you know, Dylan Thomas style, mm-hmm. um, destroying cities that they're just guys sitting in a room like you and me, you know, with dead space in the conversation and sweat on their faces and, you know, awkward smiles. And so, yeah, there were a few scenes like that. And I absolutely agree that the Truman one was, was one of them. It's also one of the best, I think, best renderings of the Oval Office I've seen. Interesting. It's Inter- like, look, it's, it's in cinema broadly speaking. In cinema broadly speaking, yeah. because it's not exalted, but it is uh-huh. bathed in light. There are the portraits of the forefathers everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. um, all around it. It, it. There is a sense that like, what I'm trying to communicate is that it is the contradictions of the White House as a building are very interesting. Uh-huh. Because the well, the White House as a building is not as grand as it could be. Uh-huh. Right? There's something like deeply American about it. It has all of these contradictions. Like it's imperial, yeah. but also kind of provincial. You know, that's yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and the fact that it's Truman that talks to him and true, you know, like give him hell, Harry. Yeah. Like Truman, the folksy, like definitely not this exalted intellectual that yeah. Oppenheimer was, though tutored in the classics. His father read him Plutarch, which he reread the rest of his life and guided wow. his political decisions. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. He said, there is no character you can meet in politics that you can't find in Plutarch's lives. Huh. Um, and he's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, the fact that I love that they kept in that he says, like, I never want to see that sissy scientist again, because that is basically verbatim what Truman actually said in real life. Yeah. 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 And so it's the, the part of the reason I made sure to bring that up, though, was that in some ways it is, you know, what I think the strength of this scene is like not white what you're saying, the strength of Killian Murphy's performances like you're in sort of like you know the and you could argue that what makes that scene succeed is you know the contrast to the rest of the movie but um you know what you were saying is you know that killian murphy you know you can feel you know he seems like someone who is you know capable of um well and i I do i i agree with this you know that um He's someone who's capable of portraying history on his shoulders. Though in a lot of scenes, I would say that's overdone, but that's, you know, maybe because of the writing. Yeah, I think that that's less his fault. Um, yeah. You know, I think, and that's why I think the movie so much relies on these bit parts, where it's characters yeah. who never get one of those preposterous lines. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But who, yeah. who, who sort of uh, um, are allowed to just be the characters. And mm-hmm. right. So um, I think one of the great ones is uh, the Saki brother who plays Teller. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which I like. He's so weird and idiosyncratic. <laughs> and the look on yeah. his face is so, so bizarre. The sunscreen during the blast with the sunglasses is, yeah. of course, an icon already become like a memed, iconic sort of thing. And, um, you know, so there's that. I think that, you know, uh, uh the other one we were talking about before this that I thought I I I like I was like I kind of want to see a whole movie about this guy. Yeah. Was Boris Pash. Uh-huh. Um, who is I mean of course like Matt Damon's character it cuts to him explaining who Pash is. 
which yeah. is like the way that scene is set up like sucks and it's like all of the weak parts of nolan at once like too many cutaways way too much exposition because i mean and i get that they're like at some point you do just kind of have to explain stuff mm-hmm. you know um but yeah. in other ways it feels way too much like the terrible john Gotti movie john travolta's in where uh-huh. it's like a character walks in and it's this big shot almost shooting him from the ground so that it's mm-hmm. big and it has the dude's name come on the screen yeah. and then some guy explain to you who johnny knuckles is after yeah. it's just been like johnny knuckles you know like there's a lot of that but i love the borscht pass scene because it shows you what the stakes were for certain people in the cold war and why mm-hmm. and yeah. turns that into a really tense scene between somebody yeah. who is not inclined to hell uh Robert Oppenheimer get out of his own way so that he can go on being a genius, but has totally other motives that are like based on the fact that he has watched likely former neighbors slaughtered by the Soviet regime. Right. And has like a totally different agenda. Like Boris Pash was a fucking psycho. Like Gross is right when he was just like, we got to get this guy out of here. <laughs> um, but Casey Affleck is good at playing like a chilling psycho. Yeah, he is. Yeah, definitely. Like he's so cold in it that I thought it was good. And yeah, so I think it's like the movie sort of saved by grace of these almost like incidental bit parts that end up being more than what they're supposed to be by the virtue of like whoever, the, I guess, the casting director was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering... So, you know, the history, the science, all of it, um, you know, how, I mean, th- this is a, a bit of a big question, but, you know, as mm-hmm. someone who writes about energy, you know, specifically a lot of the time nuclear energy, um, how did you feel about how Nolan and, you know, if, did, did you have a co-screenwriter for this? Um, I don't know. I, I can't I remember it, a lot of the time his brother works with him, but but I don't know if they did did this one together. But yeah. um, how how do you feel about how they handled that? Um dude, so I saw somebody say that uh this movie felt like the uh so you had two co-writers on it, Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. Um oh, well, unfamiliar. They, they wrote the book. Oh, they, they so yeah. Also are they did they also help with Yeah, they got writers' book? credits. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow, okay. Okay. So honestly, good for him. Um that's you know <laughs> Uh, that's a generous thing to do. Um, yeah. but, um, so, okay. How do I think about the science thing? I saw somebody tweet online that this movie was like the Avengers for people who know their multiplication tables. Um, <laughs> and that's that, I think that that's very much how it felt. And I think that, um, you know, the movie is, uh, almost, almost too in love with the figure of the scientists. Um, you know, it's like, there's just like a sequence of young Oppenheimer meeting famous mathematician after mathematician that eventually encourages him to go back and sort of like found the American school of like new physics that he's working on, like post-Newtonian physics. And that's really important. And it's nice to see mathematicians, I guess, being cast (laughs) as like Kenneth Branagh or whatever. Um, but it's so clunky yeah and it's so strange and most of it could just be cut yeah 
like I I think that uh, there's one scene with Einstein where people burst out laughing in the theater. Oh yeah, I have I laugh, and you know exactly which one it is, and it's the one where he fin like Oppenheimer finishes a very duplicitous meeting at his home with uh, Strauss, Admiral Strauss, and Strauss leaves, and then out of nowhere. Einstein walks across his lawn to hand him a book uh, yeah. and then to tell him, like, maybe you should leave your country uh, because I had to leave mine when they're doing this to you. And, you know, it's he's like, I love my country, basically. And it's just like, oh, my God. Like, first of all, the fact that he's endured this much, like, tells me that he already I don't need this scene with fucking Einstein to do this. And it was also like such a bullshit piece of writing. It was so reekly. It was yeah. like, I could feel my butthole pucker when like yeah. I was watching this scene. It was so gross. And then like, I guess to me, this brings up like a historical point. Yeah. Like I, the, one of the reasons why I, so some of the um, depictions of scientists uh, is so annoying is because oh. it doesn't, they're not vain enough. That is fascinating. So one so one negative review that I did read, um, the writer's beef with the movie was largely that they did not portray Oppenheimer as a um as someone with a megalomaniac ambition. Which um I don't know. I mean, you you know more about the actual history. So I can't speak to that. What I can say is that yeah. it is true that Oppenheimer has this sort of like transcendental religious experience and mm -hmm. in Europe and writes to his brother that he realizes that discipline and duty are the only things that make life worth it. Mm -hmm. okay. So I think he's like, I, do I think he has this like huge ambition? Yes. I think all these guys did. I mean, yeah. to me, I don't think that that, the fact that they were, Oppenheimer was ambitious is, and that he was arrogant is yeah. not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about okay. is like why people were at Los Alamos. Okay. Over and over again, you get these meetings with these guys uh, or discussions with these guys about like the importance of what they're doing for the war cause. And I think that's probably true for Oppenheimer and it might be true for a few of the Jews who fled Europe. They might have been like highly motivated like that. But I think we've totally laundered the home front history of World War II, which was mm -hmm. highly suspicious of the federal government. The War Production Board could not get the American people to cooperate. People cheated on rationing all the time. There was rampant crime in the streets. A third of Americans thought that Pearl Harbor was an inside job. And a lot of people just went to war because they knew it was their duty. No one thought they were defending democracy because Woodrow Wilson had burned through those talking points during World War I. And no one believed it anymore. Huh. It was a recurring issue for the FDR administration to figure out how to raise morale during that war. Yeah. It was not this moment of coming together that we see in like Saving Private Ryan and stuff like that. Now, the more honest parts of Saving Private Ryan, which I've recently rewatched, are like at the end when Tom Sizemore says, maybe the best thing we did in this whole shitty war <laughs> was rescue this kid. And like none of it was worth it otherwise. Uh, yeah. You know, like, and I think that is uh, the most frank Actually, the only movie that actually does, not the only, but one of the few movies that does a good job of telling that story 
is Fury, which is not a good movie. It's like Antoine Fakwa or whatever his name is, who did like yeah. Training Day and stuff like that. Because it just shows these guys in these tank having a miserable time traumatizing themselves over and over again and hating the war while taking pride in being killing machines. That's okay. it. Like that was the exp experience for a lot of people there. And then there was big demoralization and skepticism on the home front, right? So I think why a lot of people were there, and I have to check the record to confirm this. So I'm gonna be talking out my ass a lot. Why a lot of people were there at Los Alamos. Los Alamos is because it was like fucking cool. <laughs> and because they could be the people who took responsibility for doing that. And like, that's why they were there. And like, the only scenes where you kind of like get that are the ones where they're bickering with each other, which I thought yep. were some of the most fun scenes in, in the movie. Um, but like, that's what was going on. And it's also like, you know, uh, uh, it's hard to get the full cast of characters there. And it's not a movie about Los Alamos, but like these guys had their own suite of ambitions for what they were doing. Uh, and like, and like those were big guiding impulses for what they wanted out of being the people who split the atom, right? Like yeah. who did that? And I think that that like, to me, all of the stuff of like we're meeting mathematicians or whatever is like way too like highfalutin and not human enough. Yeah. Rather that it's just like people being radically ambitious and wanting to do the thing because that's the thing that they want to do. Like when you're at that level of the game, it's like tautological. Yeah. You know, like you're doing it because it's good enough itself. And so you don't need like external justifications. Yeah. To do it. Right. Like one of the like I some of the scenes I liked the most were Groves being frustrated with scientists. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would say that like the moment where he says like, this is the most important thing in history. I was like, shut up. You don't know that yet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah there, there's a lot of that in the movie. Like, you don't, you don't know that yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Let me ask you this. How do you think that dropping the bomb was handled in the movie? Um, that's a hard one. Well, that actually, I might just respond with a different question, but I am. Um, I mean, as well, I've already said, you know, afterwards, I thought it was handled well, um, or that, you know, the scene that I isolated, I thought was handled well, but, um. I am inclined to say that I didn't feel like it had the impact that it should. Um, mm. I mean, you know, I guess to an extent, um, having him, uh, you know, having him variously haunted and, you know, not necessarily showing the carnage per se, but, you know, having like a few like visions um, I think that, you know, that was fine. One, a question that I have, and, and I may just be like very wrong about this, um, but is whether they convincingly handled, um, Oppenheimer's transition from when he's at Berkeley, um, when he is, you know, accepting that he's working for the military, um, and I think that I'm inclined to say that that wasn't handled very well or 
convincingly or that it was maybe something that in spite of all this content, you know, and, you know, chatter elsewhere in the movie, it's a transition that just felt like it went by kind of like, Zoop. um, mm. and that maybe that is why I'm not, um, maybe the bombs dropping were a little, were, um, seems maybe like it shouldn't have had the impact that it did. No pun intended at all there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, yeah. Wh what did, what did you think of how the bombs that, so how that I, would, I would say that like the scene with Truman is great. Also casting, casting Gary Oldman for Truman, I think was yeah. like, there was something <laughs> yeah. really fun about that. Like as soon as I yeah. saw him, I was like, oh, great. I was like, awesome. Like I'm in for a nice ride for the next hour for many minutes, you know? Um, but I would say that, like, uh, I would say on the one hand, the movie did a good job, I thought, especially with, like, the Rami Malek character and the tensions between the different parts of the Manhattan Project and the anxieties of the scientists about uh, what it means to work with the government. Uh -huh. Right. That was a real tension for all of these people, mm -hmm. um, some more than others, like. Vannevar Bush, who's sort of the old white-haired guy at the end, who's like during the scenes where he's basically Oppenheimer's being interrogated and his friends are being interrogated, that he's like, this is a show trial, basically. And like, uh -huh. this is bullshit. <laughs> like, uh -huh. I see what you guys are doing. Vannevar Bush was totally comfortable with it. Like, uh -huh. he writes when he's working in the utility industry in like the 20s, an essay called The Engineer and His Society or something like that. Where uh -huh. he's just like, we should take a larger role in bureaucratic governance of American society. And then later on, he's like, we need to make the military industrial complex. And then he and then he does that, you know, um, so he yeah. was fine with it. But there were all sorts of like tensions with that and tensions about what the relationship with Soviet scientists should be, especially mm. because they were our allies at the time and because of just how these European scientists had come up understanding what collaboration was supposed to be like. Um, and it was hard for the Americans too, don't get me wrong. Um, but so I, th I thought it did a good job of that. Um, and the anxieties around what does it mean to be working on a military project and this is going to kill a lot of people. How do we feel about that? Um, <clears throat> I think the stuff around Oppenheimer sort of like wanting to be investigated as a form of like self-induced penance um was comes way too late feels unjustified because christopher nolan again doesn't know how to handle the intricacies of human feeling or softness um catherine blunt is like one of the only people that gets some of that stuff across in this entire movie um, with yeah with yeah. how like frankly right she is compared to everybody else despite being like a brutal drunk and yeah. also, like, she seems, her, she plays and her character understands the emotional stakes and psychological mm. stakes better than anybody else. Um, yeah. But what really worked for me is when Oppenheimer gives his celebration speech in the basketball court at Los Alamos. And it has the, like, weird sound effects. And, like, at one point he puts his foot through... Um, an ashen carcass while he's walking off away from the podium. Yeah. I thought that was actually really well handled because I, that was one of my questions going into, I was like, are we going to be inundated with explosion porn? Right. Over, yeah, that, over that was, it was wise that we were not. 
So yes. I, would, I was like, that was, that was a judicious yeah. move yeah. on Nolan's end. And that is the only thing that earns, I think, the switch to regret that Oppenheimer has. Yeah. So I think sort of revising what I said earlier. So I think the movie does, like, as you were saying, you know, it portrays in the characters who are not Oppenheimer. And, and I wouldn't say that they ignore this, con- this, um, this completely with him, but something felt kind of off. And, um, but it does, uh, like you were saying, portray, um, the various issues that all of these people were wrestling with, um, you know, in this transition, you know, are we going to go to Los Alamos? Like, do we want the government to be involved? What is this going to do? What I felt was missing is an idea of sort of what this meant to him. Like we didn't and Mm -hmm. me, um, and that might not be because it is, completely ignored but because you know nolan doesn't really know what to do with with emotion like as you were saying with human feeling and so even though i think um you know that you know that the ashen carcass you know there are times where when the regret does not um excuse me like is earned does come through it still feels like there isn't quite enough to be um I don't know, to be for it to be given its full impact, though, I I agree that it's it's really good that, you know, there isn't, you know, it's wise that the bomb is, you know, something that is largely, you know, off stage and, you know, there's no explosion porn per se. Yeah, I am. So this is. In some ways. um, How do you feel about. um, So. An enormous amount of the movie, and this, you know, is because of the book that they based it on, you know, is the trial, is um question of, you know, was J. Robert Oppenheimer um a faithful American citizen? Yeah. Um what it, maybe this is like a leading way of asking this, but um in the cop context of Oppenheimer and everything he did. What was your level of interest in that aspect of the movie or just broadly speaking of, you That's know, a good question of all the questions you could ask about Oppenheimer, you know, is that how high is that one on your list? So it's recently. So before the, while the movie was in post-production, uh, the American government posthumously restored J. Robert Oppenheimer's uh, security clearance. Uh huh. As sort of like an amends, um, oh. which I think is is uh, signals that it was clearly shady. So it's not again, it's not really a trial. It's like this backroom Atomic Energy Commission screening process right. that has basically been hijacked by McCarthyites. Right. Um, and the guy they cast as the interrogator, who's sort of the the inside man for the McCarthyites, by the way, uh, yeah. was great. Yeah, he, he was um, very good. Fantastic piece of shit. Who also plays, uh, who's good at playing that role because one of the first roles I ever saw him in is one of the um, Guantanamo Bay torturers in Zero Dark Thirty. Okay. Yeah. And he is just as good. <laughs> yeah. In that movie. Um, but 
Okay, so let's get let's get to to this whole thing. I personally am very interested in backroom bureaucratic double dealing, uh-huh. and not just historically. I mean, I'm very fascinated by the AEC. Like I'm right now, I'm working on a biographical piece on David Lilienthal, who was the first commissioner of the AEC. So I'm very interested in like what Strauss thought of him and what Conant thought of him, and like Groves as some guy who was in the mix and you know, uh, all of these other things. And like Strauss does his own stuff. Like he's a very weird guy. He totally downplayed what a big fuck up the Bikini Atoll explosion was. And that's part of why nuclear energy gets like so overregulated <laughs> because he's like such a fantastic dick about that. <laughs> it's not this is the only reason why, but that plays a role. Um, but I'm, I'm generally fascinated by that. And what I think is a shame is that, uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is the decision to put what's in the past, uh, like the decisions about what gets put in black and white versus what get, gets put in color is strange to me. Mm-hmm. So the stuff with Strauss gets put into black and white, if I remember rightly, or, right? Yeah. Right. And I, I could never figure out why. Yeah. Like that does it other than it gives it a sense of corporate menace when he's like doing these Senate hearings and it also feels more like a newsreel from the time before yeah. color television is like it, totally that ubiquitous. Convincing reason. So that's like so but like what I frankly think would have been a more ambitious move is to really make the movie about the uh, like weird McCarthyite double dealing and then just flash back in uh black and white to Los Alamos. Huh. Like to mute that history and turn it into even less of a spectacle by removing its color palette. Oh, yeah. Huh. Because like, and the reason why I think that's interesting is because to me, what really like makes me anxious during the movie is the only time where I feel anything is when those interrogations are going on. They are the only, like, domain in which I feel like Christopher Nolan has a handle on the psychological and emotional dynamics of the characters other than the Truman scene and the Boris Pash scene. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it feels like there's something missing. Uh-huh. Like, he's not hitting Pater. It's not connecting. There is, it's like there's somebody who's supposed to be in the room that isn't in the room for a lot uh-huh. of these scenes or something like that. Or somebody has a stupid line or like, you know, whatever. There's something always in, in, interfering through its absence or presence in the full emotional picture of it. And so to me, I was totally happy to see that in the film. I think it's one of the only things that gives it like real tension other than some of the stuff that goes down at Los Alamos with the beginning of the bu- making of the bomb. But because that's the atomic bomb, like the drama sells itself. Yeah. You know, like it's the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like, what more do you need? Really? Like it's sort yeah. of, it changes the world. You don't need people walking around going, we're changing the world. It's like, yeah, we know that's yeah. why we're in our, the theater watching this. So I think <laughs> I like that stuff. I liked RDJ as um, the, uh, as uh, Strauss, I think. He's so self-centered and arrogant. I don't know if this is a totally correct portrayal of him. It was true that he was like 
a dickish financier. And he was huh. brought into the Atomic Energy Commission because of his ties to Wall Street, which would help them do financing deals in the private sector to help get nuclear energy off the ground. So like, that's why he's there, right? Because we had to collaborate with, you know, like GE builds a lot of the stuff that takes place at Oak Ridge in the TVA's footprint. And that's where Ernest Lawrence is located doing plutonium production, which by the way, he royally fucks up um, and does not do a good job on. but, you know, so there's there, there's that type of dimension to it. But to me, like, I really love all of that stuff. I love all the dudes who are, like, hunting for reds because uh-huh. they're the only people who, when they're in the scene, you're like, this actor knows what their character's intention is. Yeah. yeah. Right? So they can play it. Like, Damien yeah. Dasmalchian as the guy that is sort of the character assassination hitman for the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. Who's the first Nolan film he appears in as one of the Joker's yeah. henchmen in um, I, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Right, the laughing guy. guy. Yeah. 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 Um fantastic. You know, yeah. like I could have done a whole movie where it is like the bomb is just a background to the G-men fighting mm. with the scientists, like way yeah. more directly. That's well, the, the more interesting movie yeah. to me. Huh. Yeah, well, the bomb might have had more impact that way. It's funny. Exactly. Like, cause yeah, it's, yeah. it's sort of like, it's sort of like, you know, the, no one feels this need to assert the bomb's presence. Right. When the bomb is like the most unambiguous element of the script, the amount of time that goes into CGI, which Nolan has otherwise shunned in his movies very vocally yeah. and intentionally, to yeah. demonstrate like, theoretical physical stuff i'm like dude who cares oh yeah yeah just tell me what it is and move the fuck on i don't need to see that like no it feels like the the webs and the the opening credits of spider-man yeah give me this give me the smoke-filled rooms where like guys are going through each other's files and like spying on each other like give me the life of what this project was like that to me is the stakes the stakes that no one could trust each other yeah is the story of the importance of the atomic bomb for the for the for the needs of telling a story in a film yeah so what uh, so um this might be too big a question but but i did it with history earlier science like how do you (laughs) you know how do you feel about so like really the issue um that um comes up in this movie regarding the science of what they're doing is can they split an atom and create an explosion that will create you know mm-hmm. the, um, that am, am i is there another one that they're talking about really like that's like really I, where I, science is directed yeah i think that that's that's basically yeah. correct yeah um yeah. so what's your is it like good or do they do a good job of rendering that is that what you're wondering or yeah or just like in terms of like you know the full picture um of what oppenheimer did achieved um what was your take on how um how the movie handled that in terms of i think it hand i I frankly think it handled it a little bit too much i mean this is my like this is my general take on the way that science gets used in this movie is that there's sort of too much of it huh you know what i mean like i, I we get it, it's supposed to be a motor for the plot 
mm. not a thing that the plot is the motor for. Uh-huh. And I think the second one happens to where uh-huh. it's like everything's in service of like doing the science when really like, I want to know, like, again, to me, it's sort of like, well, these people worked with each other on a top secret project and there were all these contradictions and we only get like some of the fights like, bro, spill the tea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, tell me the story. Like, yeah, because the thing, thing is like, look, I'm not a scientist. I'm sure they get some things wrong and how they represent it or, or whatever. Like, yeah, that's fine. But for an audience goer, it doesn't really matter if the science is like totally right or not. What's what matters is that like, again, so this is the this is the thing. The movie isn't set up for the final color. Yeah, because of this. Yeah, it wants to do too many things at once. It wants to yeah. sort of like exalt the science and math that goes into this, which should be exalted. I'm not saying it shouldn't and that we should denigrate. Like, obviously, I'm a fan, right, of mm. nuclear fiction. Like, yeah. a big booster <laughs> of all of this. Um, yeah. But I think that uh, he's trying to juggle too much when he does this. And I think the leaning into some of the representations of the science and stuff like that, both visually and sort of like um, maybe over explaining it sometimes or, or, or whatever, like I get that you have to do some of that, but to me, that is Nolan covering his weaknesses, which is telling the emotional story. Yeah. Yeah, because and- also the way that the science kind of gets quote unquote explained is just like you meet another famous European, yeah, for like the- five seconds, and it's kind of like okay, well, that's not really an explanation either. So it's both like too much and not enough. Yeah, in a weird way, it's it's sort of like cats. Like it's like where's Oppenheimer has to make the jellical choice about whether or not to yeah. <laughs> build the bomb. Yeah, so I guess like it's something we're kind of we're kind of landing on is um one. Maybe one of the biggest weaknesses of this movie is the impulse to frame it as a biopic. Like what is, um, you know, um, you know, that it is to an extent the story of this man's life, whereas sort of, um, what is most striking is how was this power handled and or how did we try to handle it? And what are all of, you know, the problems that it created between the people who were involved? Right. Like, yeah. and because to me, like, we actually get like remarkably little of Oppenheimer as a manager of this project when you s- sit back and think about it. Yeah. You know, like, he, like, he, he often seems to just be kind of like ethereal kind of, um, you know, and there's like this appeal to his own yeah. authority that everybody just seems to do. And like, maybe that's true, but it's not earned. Yeah, ex- definitely. You know, yeah. like it's trading on his name too much in a way. Like it's, it's sort of like revisionist or like, yeah. you know, anachronistic or something in that way. And the, where way, it doesn't... the way that Nolan tries to do that is sort of, you know, through these very like standard, you know, Hollywood in quotes, you know, these close-ups, you know, the music, you know, how he frames oppenheimer as a person and that's sort of like just um supposed to convince us that he was you know able to have the authority that he did right so 
yeah, to me, like, again, I, I'm not a director. I couldn't make this film. But like, let's say, like, let's talk thematically. What could generate really good drama? Because when we take a look at what, the material we have to work with, right? So it's Los Alamos, the creation of the bomb, and then it's what happens to Oppenheimer after the bomb is dropped. Right? Yeah. And, and the backdrop of the Cold War. That's a lot yeah. to work with. So what are those things that have in common that you could create a theme around which to build three interlocking plots? Because that's really what you have in this movie. And it's yeah. epistemic uncertainty. Yeah. That's what they all have in common. But uh -huh. the problem is, is that the epistemic uncertainty only works in like the McCarthyite stuff and shows up only tangentially in the Los Alamos stuff because the movie's trading so hard on the assumed historical of like self-understood historical importance of what they're working on. Right. So the, and what I mean by epistemic uncertainty is they don't know exactly what they're going to do or how they're going to pull it off. And that is a good way to get characters to engage in conflict with each other. Yeah. 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 And it's, um, and okay, this is my last thing. Oh yeah. And you might be able to even see like through their conflicts, you would understand both the missteps and motivations or whatever around leaking things to the Soviets mm -hmm. and how and why as a manager, Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer might have been ignorant of that or willfully ignorant of that or could be conceived to be on the hook for that or you have an epistemic uncertainty about what really happened because it's hard to know beforehand. Yeah. That I, to me is like what should be the heart of the movie, but it's missing. Like I'm going to tell you, I walked out of the movie being like, wow, I think I really liked that. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like upset at what a yeah. missed opportunity it was to humanize these people like you know uh jack quaid or uh, uh plays fine men and one thing fine men used to do is just go through people's lockers he'd be like mathematicians always put some famous fucking equation or something as their locker combination and so he would just and he caught a bunch of like soviets doing that wow and, wow and then turn them over you know like there, there are all of these opportunities from the historical material to still make it about Oppenheimer, obviously, but to bring in the psychodynamics of the like pre-bomb, bomb, and then Cold War era. Mm -hmm. There are some moments where that's achieved and then other moments where it's just like I'm watching a Hallmark movie about the making of the atomic bomb. Yeah, well... I think some a thought that is occurring to me, and in, in, in a sense, this is kind of a reiteration of what we've talked about so far, or um, like a summing up. Is so I found the movie like a genuine slog to get through, mm -hmm. and I think a part of that is um that it strenuously does a lot of work that it doesn't need to. Yes. And sort of as you're saying, you know, as you've said a number of times, you know, on this episode, you know, we know the atom bomb is significant. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we, it, it's the atom bomb. We don't need to, we don't need to do extra work 
for that. And, you know, we know Oppenheimer is an important historical figure. We don't need to have him framed as if he's, you know, like Hercules about to, you know, wrestle a monster. I, that That's yeah. dumb. Random. I think he wrestles a lion, right? That's one of the challenges. He wrestles it. Yeah, seven he trials. A lion. He kills a crab. I think he kills cancer to grab. Yeah. Um. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that is um, you know, there are sort of the the tragedy of this is of this movie uh, as you know just you know what it failed to be is you know that it fails to kind of emphasizing the um, most interesting aspects and you know cut um cut out things that it doesn't need to Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's 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 um this could have been a very frankly taught thriller yeah and i so it's interesting when i was um sort of griping about this movie to people after I saw it, I said something that I only half mean and sort of when I was saying it, you know, I was thinking like, do I, do I actually dislike movies like this? And I called it a logistics movie Mm -hmm. where I, it's like almost every single scene they're talking about, like, you know, the logistics of like, we're going through the logistics of this trial. We're going through the logistics of like, how are we going to, you know, um, uh, I don't know, you know, all the stuff at Los Alamos. And I was thinking about that and, you know, thinking, you know, maybe that's just, you know, not my thing. Um, you know, because often scenes like that, they can feel just like vehicles for exposition and, you know, especially art- artificial and overly Hollywoodized. I, I don't like that term. I don't know why I'm using it so much today. But then I, w- I was thinking about, you know, other movies and, you know, for instance, like a movie that I think is very good, you know, the Academy Award winner in 2015 Spotlight, which, you know, is mm-hmm. all about, you know, the, you know, a news investigation. And it, you could say that that is, um, you know, you, you could call that a logistics movie, like almost every single scene is about business in some yeah. ways, a, the business about, you know what they're going to do and it's um but it is so much more well focused you know and so much more um you know so much more in control of its themes that you know and it's a softer touch like in terms of like the relationships between the characters right like and it picks its moment to have the emotional revelation yeah very judiciously and it is an understated setting for it so People go see Spotlight. It's a good movie. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but it's the Mark Ruffalo scene where he says, I thought I could always go back to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Because then you look back at everything that they've been covering and you realize that they have also been doing this investigation into themselves. But you don't have any character like say, wow, we're really going to make history and fuck up the Catholic Church. I better go think about myself. <laughs> like, yeah. In yeah. in many moments, it's 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 about a very private sense of loss, a very internal sense of loss that every Catholic felt after mm. those stories came out as well. You thought you could oh, like lapsed Catholics especially, but like mm. you just thought it would always be there in a certain way. 
yeah. and then it's betrayed you, you know, like, and so I completely agree. It's like a logistics movie. I like some logistics movies, you know, yeah. like I, I like uh, Ford versus Ferrari is a great logistics movie, you know, that I had had a blast watching. Yeah. You know, because it's really just like working on a car. Like that's the that's, <laughs> that's the movie. But that's a great drama because it's also clear, like what who the major players are. Again, it's in charge of its themes. Like mm-hmm. it's in charge of the weaknesses of its characters because it psychologically yeah. understands them. And so, Andrew, I'm going to reveal to you my meta reading of this movie now. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I think this movie is only halfway about the atomic bomb and only halfway about uh, Oppenheimer. Uh-huh. I think this movie is about being a film director. Okay. Yeah. I think that there is basically something going on here with the revelation of the method that happens Mm -hmm. in a lot of Christopher Nolan's films. Yeah. He is showing you what he's doing to you. Yeah. And there is a lot of that going on. So like the character of Oppenheimer could be seen as an avatar for a movie director. What is more spectacular than film? Yeah. What is more modern than film? And what is more spectacular or modern than the atom bomb? Yeah. And so really it's about, I think, a deep sense of arrogance, ambiguity, entitlement, perhaps remorse and sort of dislocation around creating profoundly psychologically impactful directorial work and that impacts the lives of millions of people. And one of the things I would cite in the movie is evidence for this is when they're in that meeting talking about which cities they're going to drop the bomb on. And there's that gray moment where the guy says, I've taken Kyoto off the list because my wife and I like to vacation there. You know, so that that was honestly a great moment in the film, um, which I think was ad-libbed. So it goes to show you. Um, But uh, Oppenheimer tells everyone else there, we can't leave out. We can't leave out the psychological element of seeing the spectacle a 10,000 foot tower of flame. And like that to me is like, you can't leave out how traumatizing the spectacle itself is, how much it impacts you, how much it changes you to watch something. And you might say, gee, that sounds like a director with a God complex who thinks he's making people's minds by the output of this. But then you look back on Christopher Nolan's oeuvre And so much of it is about psychological manipulation and the reformatting of people's minds. Yeah. You mean like in, you like Memento? Memento or the Bane character or the Joker character or Ra's al Ghul. It is or or in Tenet, restructuring time or in uh, Inception. Yeah. Or in the prestige. Yeah. The revelation of the method of the trick. Yeah. Making someone believe that something is real when it isn't. Yeah. And that... I'm ad-libbing here. Well, the whole time, I guess. But, Go off, um, King. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Nolan's preoccupation with that above all else might be his failure 
or at least this is not this is a film that might be you know trying to um you know there there might maybe that meta reading of it um but i don't know it, it's not a movie that achieves what he's after you know in it's i uh i mean do, do you think it's like a good if if you think of it as a meta movie do you think it's a better movie no yeah (laughs) in fact i think that that's part of the problem i think that that is actually an obstacle to the movie's success because it's not really invested in what it's about yeah 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 and And that's the feeling that i get i keep i i kept watching it and i was like this feels like a movie about christopher nolan's inner life without being a movie about christopher nolan's inner life and I don't know yeah. why I got that feeling, but I was like, yeah. I was like, I feel like this is a dude reckoning with himself through telling the story of Oppenheimer. Yeah. And he did. It sounds like he ultimately doesn't have too many, you know, very probing thoughts about himself based on it, you know, or mm-hmm. I don't know. I, his preoccupation with the trick, you know, can work better in something like Inception, which, as I said earlier, I'm not like, you know, that crazy about but um you know it it can work better because it isn't you know also supposed to be about other things but yeah is speaking about you know his you know preoccupation with the trick and the spectacle itself it is striking rewatching the dark knight you know how much of that movie is the joker in so many words saying all right batman I am going to explode this bus full of children or kill this one old lady. You know, you choose. That yes. is so much of the movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah. I think I think to me, like, that is ultimately, like, why it feels like... So I put it this way. Like, when I'm watching a good piece of art, it's not ambiguous. It's mysterious. In other words, nobody knows when it comes to amb- ambiguity. In a mystery, somebody knows. It just might not be you. Uh-huh. And you can tell the difference. You can feel the difference. Hmm. Bad art tends to be ambiguous. Good art tends to be mysterious. Because uh-huh. ambiguous, at the end of the day, you go, well, I don't know. And then you walk away. Uh-huh. The mystery inspires you to try to solve it. Uh-huh. Even if you can't. Uh-huh. Yeah. It demands that you ask questions you otherwise wouldn't have. Huh. This movie almost gets there, but can't. And I think that's because of Christopher Nolan's preoccupations with himself. Yeah. And with the idea of film as medium. Yeah. He is a postmodern filmmaker locked in a straightforward modernist storyteller's body. Mm. Like, that's a, all his movies are like really simple. You know, yeah. like they're not yeah. complex. They do weird things with time mm-hmm. because he's interested in ambiguity, not in mystery. So again, none of his stuff is like productive in this way that makes you ask other questions. You're just like, oh, wow, that was surprising. Mm-hmm. You know, or it's like, we're going to plant this inside somebody's brain, but how do you know that somebody hasn't planted something in your brain? You know what I mean? Like that's the, those are the types of questions rather than like, how do we come to know and why does that matter to us? Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, so it's like the wrong type of suspicion. It's suspicion yeah. to not wonder, I guess. It's like the, the real yeah. problem here. And yeah, it's cynical. I, it's yeah. cynical. That might be the distinction that I'd personally draw rather than between ambiguity and mystery. But I, but I need to think about that more. Yeah. But yeah, Alice in Wonderland is a way better bo book, or Through the Looking Glass specifically, is a way better work of art about dreaming than Inception. You know? Yeah. 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 Not to exactly. mention the Circular Ruins, which is, you know, four pages and, you know, does not take as long to read as Inception does to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So those are sort of my closing thoughts. What are your closing thoughts on Oppenheimer? Um, well, that I think we've summed it up pretty well. And I actually, I feel like I understand it better than when we started talking, which mark of a good conversation. But um, yeah, I think it's, you know, probably more than um any nolan movie that i have seen it is the most it is where his weaknesses are most fully on display it is you know a movie that i wouldn't discourage people from seeing because of um kind of some of the questions it manages to stir up even though he doesn't explore them you know as well as someone else might yeah, I would say it's, I don't regret seeing it. There were parts of it that I really, really liked. There were performances that I really, really liked. Um, I'm glad it was made. Yeah. You know, like that's, I came away from that. I was just like, I'm glad this movie was made. Mm -hmm. You know, like, um, and also it could have been done worse. Yeah. Yeah, it, totally. You know, like the, there was, yeah. you know, the casting could have been a mess. Like they yeah. could have, you know, um, so I think like, to me, this movie was ultimately a mixed bag, but the silver lining with this is that it is a movie about nuclear that was released when we've had in the middle of a war where a nuclear plant, the Zaporizhia plant in Ukraine has been seized many, many times, creating all sorts of panics. And one thing that this movie indicated to me is that the nuclear panic is over. Hmm. How in terms of in terms of weapons and civilian and like that that felt that ultimately socially sort of external to the movie uh mm -hmm. is one of the most interesting things about it how, how how did you feel that the movie um proved that yeah basically basically in its response everybody talked about how bad nuclear weapons are to them and you know sort of like how would we have should we have handled Hiroshima and Nagasaki, if at all, like that type of thing, which are all fair questions to ask in the wake of seeing this and fair question to ask at any time, really. Mm. Uh, but there was not, from what I could tell, the level of blanket scaremongering about nuclear technology Okay, that I think was so prevalent in the Cold War era. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there's almost like a bookend on the meme of nuclear apocalypse now. And this movie is the other end. The first one being the China syndrome uh -huh. with Jane Fonda, you know? Yeah. And this it's sort of like to me, it was like, and this is over. Yeah. We're in, like, we're in a new yeah. era now. This would, I mean, this is sort of an obvious parallel to draw, but it would, it would be sort of fun to watch this movie back to back with Dr. Strangelove. 
absolutely, absolutely. Maybe Doctor Strangelove is even the better bookend. But Doctor Strangelove is also like doing something so different uh, yeah. than the China Syndrome <laughs> in terms of what it's interrogating. It's uh, mm. it's also just a better movie than both of them, like by yeah. far. You know, yeah. uh, Kubrick, I think, is one of um one of Nolan's idols. Okay, which yes, a lot of ways makes sense. Which is also why I think that the scenes with uh, Admiral Strauss were shot in black and white because of Doctor Strangelove. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> no, so I think it's a <laughs> nod there. Whether that's a successful nod or why he did that, I don't know. I'll leave that for people to debate. But everybody, thank you for listening. We really, we really went after it with this one. This is going to be a recurring thing. Andrew and I have talked about other movies that we are going to talk about in terms of energy. So we've already talked about the China Syndrome. That'll happen at some point, I'm sure, because that one, I think, did win an Academy Award the year it came out. Um, but we are also we also have Chinatown on the list um, and I think a few other ones. I think there are some good old labor movies that are unsung that are quite good about the coal strikes in Western Virginia in the early part of the 1900s that I think uh, we could get down with. Uh, so energy cinema. We're going to make it happen. Andrew, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been a great time. Likewise. All right, everybody. Remember, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.